In today's podcast, I sit down with Elizabeth Broderick Ayo. We discuss the complexities of gender equality and what it takes for a leader to make real and lasting cultural change in organizations. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Hey everyone, so I'm Jack Jacobs and I'm very excited this week to be launching Beaconsfield. It's a podcast about institutional reform and cultural renewal. I'm interested in that question of how we keep our institutions alive and healthy in times of crisis and change. And I can't think of anyone better to be launching this podcast with than Elizabeth Broderick Ayo. How are you doing, Liz? Good. Thanks very much, Jack. And thanks for inviting me on for the launch. I feel very privileged. I'm privileged. And so to give everyone a bit of context um, about the incredible things you do, um, Elizabeth Broderick Ayo is the current UN Special Rapporteur for Women, and she's an independent expert that works with the UN on women's issues. Um, she's Australia's ex-sex discrimination commissioner and has been a forthright leader in cultural change throughout a variety of projects in Australia. And we're really lucky to have her come onto the show today to speak particularly about gender equality and the way we can kind of navigate um, the responsibilities and values um, of that area. So Liz, um, let's start off talking by about cultural renewal then. So having worked with several organizational cultures over the last few years, sporting teams, the AFP, the ADF, university administration, and the United Nations, how is it that you think leaders in gender equality can affect ongoing lasting cultural change? What are your big tips? Let's start off general here. Yeah, that's a really big question, actually, mm. Jack. Um, but I suppose if I start with looking at the attributes of leaders that are leading major mm. transformation, and particularly in the areas of gender equality, um, what is it that they have in common? So the ones that are doing it best, they have, they have immense courage. Now, we mightn't see courage um, in the sense of, you know, actually going into a physical battle, but they have the courage to stand up and take often a, um, a, a view which is not necessarily a popular view. Mm. So they have courage, and I can give a few examples of that as we go along. They have an unshakable commitment um, to, what the, to the change they're trying to lead. So it, it goes to the core of who they are. It's not just an add-on. Um, and in the way they act, what they say, what they prioritise and what they measure, that commitment is evident to everyone. So I think that's important. The mm. other thing is that they're vulnerable. They often say, look, I don't know what the answer is, but maybe we could try this or let's talk about what's messy and sad and I'm going to start by telling you my own story. So mm. that ability to be vulnerable, which you wouldn't imagine in the military or even in sport, which is highly competitive, but the ones that are doing it best are deeply vulnerable. And the other attribute I'd say is they have a strong authenticity. I mean, what you see is actually who they are. You know, that what that they do what they say. Mm. Um, they're not pretending to be something that they're not. So that mm. deep authenticity, empathy, humility, um, and not only that, perseverance, because change doesn't come in one giant leap. It mm. comes in, you know, thousands and thousands of small steps. I call it, uh, I talk about it as adding, adding to, adding more, continuing. It's each of those steps. And they don't give up, you know, in the first mm. gale. 
they just course correct and then they come back and keep on pushing forward mm-hmm. in a deeply human way. So the ones that are leading transformative change, whether they be male or female, um, that's the attributes of those strong leaders. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, Liz, because I think this relationship between the leadership and the community you're trying to change is a really interesting one. So I'm guessing that the reason you've listed these particular values is that they are what the leader needs to speak to the community or the institution in a way where they're going to actually listen um, to what's being said. I was wondering if you could expand a bit upon how we speak to communities in a way that is actually going to motivate them to get around the change, particularly when they're unwilling, resistant to change, because human beings tend to be conservative, I think, and averse to Mm. wanting to change their ways of life. How can a leader use those values that you've just listed there to speak to people in a way that actually gets them involved in their own change? You're right, because if you just roll up and demand change, I can tell you nothing will shift. And I've seen so Mm. often, you know, people go in, they have no um, ability to recognise what exists today. They just run in with a strong reform agenda and say, listen, this is what we're doing, everyone get on board. Um, And to be honest, you might as well not bother. And and not only that, I think it goes to the heart of respect because when I go in and I have no recognition of the parts of the culture or the organisation or whatever it is you're trying to change that are good today, um, then I don't acknowledge the contribution that already exists. So for me, as a leader of change, it's about recognising those things which exist today, which probably took years and years to develop and build and someone cared enough to step Mm -hmm. up and speak and I recognise what's good and what should be protected and guarded as we move forward. And I thank people for their contribution and recognition. But having said all that, um, you know, what we we know is that organisations just like um, every one of us needs to evolve to stay relevant, to actually deliver impact. So having recognised the historical contribution of individuals, I hope to show them a different future. And the way I think that I do that is engaging in many, many conversations, Jack. So when I step up and engage in a conversation with you about change, part of it will be putting maybe some hard data to you, stuff that will engage your mind, but equally it will be telling you the stories Mm. of the adverse impact of what exists today so Mm. that you can see that human suffering is happening on our watch and I can engage through your heart to get you to step up and do something differently. And I think there's a couple of practices which I find really useful when I do this work. Um, The first thing is quite profound, but it is very simple. And that is when I engage with people about in a change, a conversation about change, I never assume that those who hold views contrary to mine actually come with ill intent. Because I think when you assume that, you actually shut down any chance um, Mm. of, you know, of a meaningful conversation which will deliver any impact. You instantly cut yourself off from understanding why someone holds the views that they do. Mm. Now, I may not agree with your view and you may not agree with mine but what I can't challenge you on and what I'm trying to discover in these conversations is what are the forces and influences that have shaped you to hold that view because if I can do that 
then maybe we can find some common ground and a bridge mm -hmm. of understanding. And just to give you one example of that, yeah. um, I'm part of a small group of the working group and each of its members have different views. And if we took something as, you know, provocative as, say, sex work, it's an area that we need to navigate mm. in terms of what are the human rights of sex workers. They're some of the most vulnerable in our communities. There'll be a range of views in the group about that. So we'll have some potentially like me who believe that, well, you know, often sex work is not necessarily a choice, but to the extent that women engage in sex work or indeed men, that it should be well-regulated, it shouldn't be exploited, there should be no violence. Um, so I'll have that type of view. Whereas one of the others in the group will, she's what they call an abolitionist. She, her view is that sex work should be obliterated from the face of the earth. And whilst I disagree with her view, um, what I've been able to do is understand what are the influences and forces that shaped her to hold that view. And I know from discussions with her now, she holds that view because she's deeply connected to Indigenous women in her region of the world. And um, Indigenous women and many believe that the body is sacred. Mm. So the idea that I would offer it up to sex work is such an anathema um, that that's why she holds those views. But I think not assuming ill intent, she doesn't come with any ill intent at all. She just comes with a different view and it's incumbent on me to understand how, why it is that mm. she holds that view. So that's one of the practices I use. The second practice, which I find really useful, is I ask myself, what am I troubled about in my own point of view? Um, and what do I see as attractive or positive in your point of view? And then if I can offer up mm. my dilemma in the hope of finding some common ground, mm. and not only that, I'm being vulnerable, I'm acknowledging that there's a chink in my argument and I'm willing to look to find a way forward that we may not have imagined before. Mm. I think that's a useful technique as well. So those two techniques I think are important in those change discussions. That's incredibly interesting. So it's about, I mean, all of that stems from listening, doesn't it? It's about having the vulnerability to open up, acknowledge that your own views have their own fragility, and then to try and share those with others in a way that kind of honours their dignity. Hey, and I, I think, yeah. yeah, what I what I've always thought about um, a reason for why your work in gender equality is so compelling is that you're very um, adamant about involving men in gender equality. So. It's been 10 years or so, I think, since you set up the Male Champions of Change strategy. So if you could just speak a bit about what that is and then just a follow-up question on that. In that 10 years, do you think men have stepped up beside women in Australia, at least on gender equality? Have we been able to find common ground that in 2010 or 2009 to you seems so far away? Or have things not changed? Are there still things we need to do? So if you could just tie those incredible comments you made about listening and empathy into the male champions of change work and male involvement. I'd be really interested to, interested to hear what you think is the, is the link up there. Yeah. Thanks, Jack. Mm. Um, male champions of change came about probably about 10 years ago now. So I'd been the sex discrimination commissioner for about two years. Mm. And to be honest, when I went into that role, I came with what I now understand is a pretty limited view, but I believe fundamentally that this was a women's issue for women to solve. I didn't mm -hmm. see it as necessarily a key economic and social issue in the way that I do today. And I also believe that this was women's business. It was the collective action of women 
that had got women the right to vote, the right to work and care, the right to live free from violence, the right to pay equality, all those things largely came about in most of the nations of the world, including here in Australia, mm. because women, and indeed, probably will never know, several generations back, cared enough to step up and start advocating and demanding these rights. And for that, mm. to be honest, I'll be eternally grateful. Mm. So I figured, well, I'll just be part of the continuation of that picture. I'll mobilise all my networks of women and we'll move ahead mm. in that regard. But when I sat down to actually think about it, I started to realise, actually, that's quite an illogical approach because the fact is in most nations of the world, women don't hold the levers of power. They mm. do a little bit, but largely the levers of power are held by men. So if we want to create change, we need powerful, decent men stepping up beside women, not speaking for them, not rescuing them. Um, but stepping up beside them and taking equal accountability and responsibility for change. And that was really the birth of a male champions of change organisation, a recognition that without powerful, decent men, good, decent men who are connected with all of us in our lives, um, that if we can't engage men to work with us in a really collaborative and co-creative way, we weren't going to shift the picture of gender equality because gender equality is essentially about the redistribution of power in nations. Um, it's about the redistribution of power in organisations right. and indeed right back in the family, Jack. It starts right yeah. back in the family. And so often I meet young girls who um, be often because they have parents who believe that gender equality benefits everyone this is not a zero-sum game where women win and men lose, not at all. All the research shows that actually in more gender-equal families, there's more economic resilience. Mm. So, for example, in this period of COVID-19, if, you know, the, the father loses his job, then the mother or the other person in the, in the relationship um, they will more likely have employment. So you've got two incomes. So mm. if one loses their job, the family won't be thrown into poverty. So there's so many ways that gender equality builds resilience, not just in families, but in organisations as well. What we know is those organisations with greater levels of gender diversity, particularly at senior levels, actually perform better. It's yeah. not necessarily a causal relationship, wow. but, but it is highly mm. correlated. And similarly, and I've just been returned six months or so ago from Greece looking mm. at the engagement of women in their labour market. The reason they're doing that is they want to rebuild their economy after years of austerity and the um, bringing women back into the workforce is absolutely critical. So those things are really um, at the heart of a male champions of change strategy. Um, as one of our male champions of change says, he said, look, men invented the system. Um, men largely run the system. Men mm. need to step up with women and shift the system. Yes. And that's really what Male Champions of Change is about. That's incredibly interesting. And I think, I mean, an underdeveloped question that I find really interesting is that I think that being involved in gender equality for the sake of respecting the values involved in it is actually good for men. Um, it's good mm. for men at a deep personal level. It's good for the way they relate to the women in their lives, the way they relate to each other. Um, do you think that there's something deeper in being involved in gender equality work as a, as a man for, you know, the sake of your soul almost. Is there something really good in it for, for men to be involved in it? Um, you, know what, you know what I mean, what I'm getting yeah. at? 
Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more, Jack, because at the heart of this is shared humanity. Yeah. Uh, and, mm. you know, I often say, you know, men in organisations might say, well, you know, why should we care? And I, I just mm. say to them, look, are you happy to work in an organisation where you know 50% mm. of the talent will never have the same opportunity to thrive that you will, will never be paid the same for doing comparable work that you are? Is that the organisation you're happy to be part of as it's happening under your watch? Um, and I think once you start to put it in a human context, um, people say, no, actually, I'm a better person for being engaged in gender equality. Similarly, with the issues around the sharing of care, so mm. the sharing of paid and unpaid work between men and women. I mean, the idea that my mother would live in poverty because she chose to care for me rather than be um, actively engaged in paid work because that was not an option for her. It was a binary choice. Either I'm in paid work or I'm caring for my family. And that's still a binary choice in many, many mm. nations of the world. The idea that she would live in poverty because she chose to care for me, it's such an anathema, I mm. think, that anything that we can mm. do, men and women together, boys and girls together, that will ensure that those people who choose to care are equally recognised with those who choose to mm. be engaged in paid work. Because at the end of the day, it's all work. That's the world I want to inhabit. In fact, I want to inhabit a world where care sits front and centre mm. of society's purpose. Um, and when I look at it, just even going through these deeply unsettling times at the minute, it's care, care for community, care for um, sick people, care for relatives and older people. Mm -hmm. It's all that caring work, care for children. That's what's sustaining this nation as we move through the COVID pandemic. Yeah. So let's start recognising that. And gender equality is a great way to recognise that. Yeah, it's such an important point. I mean, let's, let's talk about COVID a bit more, um, about the impacts of COVID on gender equality and the role that gender equality might play as an ethos moving out of this, however long it might take. Um, on a darker note, I mean, we've seen quite a few statistics coming out over the last few weeks concerning the rise in domestic violence service engagements during this lockdown. So um, that was probably one of the unexpected major problems of this crisis, um, but one that we do need to deal with. I mean, just today, according to an SMH article by Lucy Cormack, on a good note, mm. um, May 26, 2020, it's been announced that um, around $21 million or more mm. is going to come out and go into domestic violence services in New South Wales. That's great. But do you think that the problem is being created by the crisis or exacerbated by the crisis or was it there before? And if it was there before, how has this domestic violence problem changed because of the crisis? And what can we do about it? Because it's very serious. You're absolutely right. It's a, a great shame on our nation. Um, and mm. it was absolutely there before the crisis. Prior to the crisis, more than one woman a week was murdered mm. by her intimate partner. Yeah. Um, and we know in globally, if I look at this global picture, um, around 980 million women are either today living in an intimate relationship characterised by violence or have recently done so. Actually, that's going into COVID. Now, what we know from um, the some of the um, mm. responses to COVID is where families are in a series of lockdowns or quarantine or isolation or whatever, where their ability to reach out to services 
um, is limited. But not only that, the tensions in the home, um, you know, can become exacerbated, particularly with financial stress and everything else. Mm. And that um, means that often women who might have in the past had some access to service or help uh, have not been able to do that during during the lockdown. And what we saw, and if I just start by Hubei province, um, where Wuhan is, of course, they had a 300% uplift in the number of domestic violence reports. Italy, similarly, um, many other nations. And I know here in Australia, the and if I look at just one state, New South Wales, the New South Wales Police Commissioner um, says quite rightly there hasn't been an increase in calls. Mm. But when you look at the and speak to the heads of domestic violence agencies and NGOs, there's definitely a significant uplift, up to about 25% in the number of online inquiries and requests for help. So the fact is, if you're locked down with your abuser, you are not going to pick up the phone and ring the police. That's the last thing you're going to be able to do. Um, you may be able to go online at some stage and try and ask for help that way. So what we're seeing is an escalation in domestic and family violence. Um, the good news, um, actually, Jack, here in Australia is mm. probably of all the nations in the world, we are the most advanced in workplace responses to domestic violence. Mm. I mean, the union movement has been a really strong agent of change in that as well. And mm. um, what I know from my Mouth Champions of Change CEOs is that many of them are across mm. this issue. Every one of them will have a domestic violence policy um, and they will they have been arranging alternative accommodation for women. They have been deeming women to be essential office workers where that woman's reached out to them um, and they're actively looking out for the issues of domestic and family violence. Yeah. But at, at, at the heart of this issue is gender inequality. Mm. I mean, domestic violence is all about power and control um, and it's more prevalent in a less gender equal world. Yeah, it's... I mean, there's so much that that's that's really important. What what stood out to me from that is how you're talking about this integrated approach that corporations, unions, these mm -hmm. kinds of organisational mm -hmm. communities might actually be the best place to respond to this social intractable issue. What do you think governments can do? So other than funding, other than the kind of basic material stuff that needs to happen, like the great um, news that we've heard today about the new funding, what can governments do in terms of value, in terms of telling new stories, in terms of, you know, enhancing what the corporations and the unions are trying to do? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think government has a critical role. I mean, if we look at the international mm. conventions, they bind governments. I mean, it's government's responsibility to keep women safe in this nation. That's what they signed on to when they signed the convention. So they have a large part to play. As you mm -hmm. said, part of that is in funding frontline organisations. But I think government actually keeping this issue high on the government's agenda, on the nation's agenda, I think the fact that um, government ministers and those who are senior, uh, not just ministers but in our bureaucracy also, that they actually promote um, uh, you know, behaviours of non-violence, of respect, of right. inclusion. And in a sense, that's been part of a debate about the way um, question time and other, you know, Senate estimates and those types of um, formal, um, you know, systems work in our government. Are they ones that are sending a message about respect? And mm. there'd be many who argue that that's not the case. So I think it's incumbent on those who lead this nation to act in 
res- deeply respectful um, mm. and nonviolent. And I include in violence, it's not just physical violence, it's verbal violence, it's psychological abuse. Yes. I mean, if we look at domestic and family violence, it also includes economic abuse, cultural mm. abuse, not being able to practice your culture and beliefs, and of mm-hmm. course, sexual violence. So it's quite wide. But what we need to be doing is looking to our leaders as um, role models in this regard. And I have to say, looking across the world today, it's pretty grim to see how some are, some leaders are actually stepping up or not and the behaviours that are being adopted in relation to building respect and social cohesion in nations. Mm. So it's, I mean, it's really about value promotion in mm. a really um, steadfast kind of integrity-driven way, isn't it? So I wanted to ask you a bit more about your role in the UN. So you're working in this global environment. You've spoken about how you're working with other people in the working group who might not have the same views or attitudes or approaches to gender equality that you have. Um, What about the global perspective has changed the way that you view government action, that you view organisational cultural change in Australia? Is there, you know, being in Greece, um, being all around the world, what what are some cool stories or insights you've got to do with your new global role? Yeah, it's an interesting global role. Mm. So just to give you a bit of a thumbnail sketch about what it is, it's essentially uh, I have a number of roles. One is to lead mm. the country visits, um, so to look at how nations are treating women and girls and then to make recommendations as to how to lift their status. Um, and that's why I was in Greece and in the Greek um, refugee camps, particularly on the Greek islands, and some of the things that I'm bearing witness to there were were really to be honest, just deeply traumatising for individuals and for those who bear witness as well. Um, Mm. So that's one role. The other is to actually write official communications to the heads of nations, drawing to Mm. their attention human rights violations that are happening, particularly against women and girls. And the third thing is to really look at strong um, thematic areas such as, say, women's rights in the changing world of work. So consult all across the world and see what a truly global picture um, looks like, um, and Mm. particularly at this time of change. So, I mean, in terms of um, how the communication needs to differ, because most of my communications at that level, I'm communicating with human rights defenders from every part of the world. I mean, these are individuals who... um, will um, go to jail for standing up and saying, I don't have protective personal protective equipment. So you'll lose your job. You might even go to jail. You'll be um, targeted as a contagion, all those types of things uh, at the minute. Um, just to give you another example, I was, we were recently in contact with a small a, a group of women in Cambodia who were um, many, most women in Cambodia, many nations in Southeast Asia will work in the informal economy. So they were street vendors. This young woman was selling clothes. And once you go into lockdown, you can't be in a public space selling your wares. So she decided to become a digital entrepreneur. She started posing with her clothes on her Facebook page mm. um, and selling, trying to sell clothes that way. This is about feeding herself and her family and everything else. And actually the Prime Minister came out and said, well, there were women in Cambodia who were bringing into disrepute and affecting the moral fabric of Cambodia by, you know, wearing clothes on Facebook. Mm. Um, and uh, the net result of that was that the, you know, group of policemen came around, took her out of her house and she was imprisoned. So 
these are um, my engagement with human rights defenders is very much at a human level. So I keep those same techniques. When I meet with the heads of nation states, as I do in, or their representatives, their permanent representatives, as I do regularly in Geneva and New York, mm. I try to bring in the voices of the people that I've met. Because those, you know, we talk a lot in policies and resolutions yeah. and what I call very um, kind of particular language, the language of modalities in the United Nations and whatever. But at the heart of it, if you can cut through mm. with a strong human voice, you can actually engage that permanent representative or leader as a human being first and a leader second. And my my view is that when you do that, you have a much greater ability to cut through and mm. together work out different solutions. So you're taking the story-driven approach of organisational change that you practice in Australia and developed here to that global level. Have you got any? Have you got any examples of where that's worked particularly well at a global level? Even in just connecting with women, um, you know, who are really the most important player in this, women on the ground who are experiencing this. Have you got any particularly moving moments? Um, well, there's so many moving moments because yeah. I'm I'm the keeper of a million million of stories. But yeah. just to give you some impact of that, we did the mm. working group did a country visit to an African nation in the, mm. in the middle of Africa. I'm not going to name which nation, but what we found there was that the male and female prison population was co-mingled. Um, mm. And we went into the prisons to interview women. We heard their stories of rape and sexual violence um, day after day. And it was our ability to go to the first lady with those stories and to talk mm. with in their direct language and direct quotes, which led to um, that particular nation um, on, on the day we left, uh, they had built separate um, toilet facilities and, and had segregated the prison mm. um, in a way that recognised, you know, those changes. So mm. I think, I mean, there's so many minutes, moments of impact. I just want to give you another beautiful moment of impact and it probably comes back to the male champions of change. Right. Um, a couple of years ago I was um, I was giving a lecture uh, to the master's class at the law at Sydney University and I talked about, you know, the work I was doing with the UN and also male champions of change work. And at the end of my session, when, you know, the, the lecturer asked whether there was any questions or comments, a young woman down the front, she put her hand up and said, oh, look, I don't have a question, but I do have a comment. She said, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, she's going to tell me one of the male champions is not doing his part. But like, yes, <laughs> unfortunately, that's a lived reality sometimes. But yeah. she didn't. She came forward. She said, look, I just want you to know, she said, three years ago, my father became a male champion of change. She said, and I can't tell you how yeah. everything about my life has changed. Wow. She said, you know, he's interested in my career. Mm. He asks what I think about things, asks mm. for my opinion. She said our Christmas dinners are so much better. <laughs> our holidays are much more engaged and whatever. And she said I put it down to the fact that he's started to understand that he has a role in helping right. create more gender equality in the in our family, but also in the nation. So Which, it was yeah. such a heartwarming story, and it, it made me reflect. The fact is, Mount Champions of Change was never invented for that. It had a clear, in a mm. sense, business purpose. But to the mm. extent that 
you people are whole individuals and mm. they change they don't just change in business they change in the family as well i think it comes back mm. to your earlier point jack mm. about you're a better person because of it and that's so true and it's it's a character and an ethical development too and i think what you've given these leaders is a space to develop conversations or have conversations around the complexities of all all of this work would you agree with that that part of it is that openness and vulnerability into which you've invited them that makes them feel they can yeah, do absolute, that absolutely yeah. and just to give you one other story from pakistan so i'm in mm. islamabad now and i was convening a round table with a number of uh, members of the media and mm. m- many male members of the media and there was one beautiful man who'd come all the way in from the fatah region which is on the border with afghanistan so it was a really disputed dangerous region yeah. he ran a radio station he was um broadcasting to taliban leaders tribal elders and um when i said to him look oh, oh not only that what i learned jack was that he was including gender equality content in his broadcast so he was talking telling people please send your daughters to school um don't beat your wife you know, he was running stories on transgender i mean he was doing amazing things i'd say he put his life at risk every day mm. and i kind of jumped across the table and said but how did the universe deliver you to us what a <laughs> you know, gift and he said to me well actually i come from a large family he said i have um seven sisters and one brother He said and because we're a poor family my parents had to make a decision about who they would send to school so that they decided they would send my brother and I and he said and one day on the way to school my brother and I we made a pact we mm. decided that if we ever had any power and influence in the mm. world we would use it to empower women because if we were able to do that one day our own sisters might have a chance at an education mm. and it just hit me again that when we personalize these things when we when they're you know really lodged in our hearts that's when we'll be prepared to stand up in really difficult circumstances mm. um to advocate for change and to really drive change and actually the his parting words to me were he said and liz after all um what future do i want for my own daughter what future do i want for the daughters of this world mm. truly beautiful and it's and i mean he's becoming a keeper of a thousand stories too isn't he and i wanted yeah. to ask i wanted to ask you about that um what's it feel like what's how do you hold so many stories together personally like do you do you ever have to take pause after one of those trips and just go wow and um what's the responsibility you feel in this because i i think it it cannot be an easy thing to take that burden on how how do you process that am- amazing responsibility yeah it is a lot yeah. to hold there's no question of that because there's a responsibility that um comes with being the keeper of these stories mm. so what i've learned over time though is to hold it quite gently i mean the fact is yeah um jack that there's no if if i become um you know wedded to any given action creating any given impact so mm-hmm. you know action and impact being t- tightly connected in a sense in my world it's so complex that is an illusion i have to um move away from being wedded to any individual result and just believe in the truth the value and the rightness of the work that i'm doing yeah. because unless i do that i'll move into smaller and smaller orbits 
those orbits where I know that if I take this action, that result will happen. And that's not the world I choose to be in or the work that I choose to do in the world, the work that's mine to do. So what I try to do then is not just at the end of any visit or, you know, series of consultations, not just then to reflect. What I try to do is prepare in advance. Um, And that's through really my mindfulness practice. So I'm a regular meditator. Um, And if I'm going into a refugee camp, I will meditate morning and night. I'll I'll remind myself that whilst I might feel powerless to affect change, I mean, you know, what chance do I have of convincing the European Union they need to open their borders to refugees, say, for example, coming from Greece? And I have to say Greece has been very welcoming to refugees. But Mm. really, if I was to hold on to that, I'd be disappointed. So what I remind myself is that I have an inner life. I can feel Mm. powerful internally because Mm. when you feel powerful, when I stand and bear witness in a particular way, I mm-hmm. listen deeply, I engage in at, at, at a level which is around shared humanity, that's when I actually will have impact as well because power radiates and, mm-hmm. you know, it radiates to um, help others see that there is, there is things that we can do. There is hope even in the very difficult circumstances that we find ourselves. I think it's important to do that. This is something that the human rights defenders have taught me is that being well, both physically and mentally, in many Mm. nations of the world, it's the ultimate act of political defiance. And not only that, it's the ultimate act of women's empowerment. So I will be well, both physically and emotionally and mentally. Um, And that's another reason for my meditation, for covering myself in white light, a whole variety of things like that. I think that's an absolutely wonderful point to end on. I think that's really powerful. And Liz, what an inspiring person you are. I mean, um, you've been a huge influence on my own life. I think that you're an incredible, incredible leader and the world is so much better for the work that you do. So thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. Um, you've, you've launched it out of the ether. <laughs> but um, thank you, Liz. Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much, Jack. And I've really loved having, um, having our conversation. It's been quite cathartic, actually. I yeah. hope the dogs growls or whatever is he's chasing, <laughs> chasing the, the bush turkey around the garden haven't interfered with the recording. So thanks so much and good luck with the podcast. I'm thank really you. looking forward to listening to future editions of it. Thank, thank you so much.